Welcome back to the Hand to Shoulder podcast. On today's episode, our very own Anne Pareto Lurkey joins the show to talk everything thoracic outlet syndrome. There is so much great information in this episode. I promise you will be able to take something from this episode and apply it in clinic immediately if you're treating those patients with TOS. So let's not waste any more time. Let's get you right into the episode. But before you leave your listening platform, make sure you guys click that subscribe button and leave us a five-star rating so we can keep changing the world one hand to shoulder at a time. And thank you so much for coming on. It's very short notice, but if I could only have you on the podcast for one, this would be the topic, thoracic outlet syndrome. <laughs> this is, I feel like, your specialty. I remember attending this course um, that, um, if you guys don't remember, and the first time we had Alan, she works for the International Academy of Orthopedic Medicine. Uh, she helped develop the hand and upper extremity track, and one of the courses that she teaches is for thoracic outlet syndrome. I remember going to the course, and she's describing TOS, what these patients are like, and it was just a mind-blowing experience for me, and I went back from that weekend and was able to apply tons of stuff from the clinic and I'll help a lot of people where I probably was bad therapist and all these people are crazy. They don't know what's going on, but yeah, I, I, I just, I think this is an amazing topic to have you on to talk about thoracic outlet. So thank you again, Anne. I don't know. Why don't we just cut right into it? And can you just tell us what is thoracic outlet syndrome? Okay. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me, Steve. And this is a topic I always really enjoy talking about because I, I feel like that thoracic outlet syndrome or TOS, as we refer to it, is one of the most elusive diagnoses with hand and upper extremity rehab. There is a, a lot of, um, I think, contradiction with beliefs about the, whether or not it exists. And when you, when you talk to, especially like from a physician standpoint, there are some physicians that will only diagnose it based on objective tests. And what we find out the majority of our TOS population doesn't have positive objective tests. A lot of the diagnosis is based on the history and clinical exam. So for that reason, I, th I think we don't see a lot of patients that walk in the clinic with a diagnosis of TOS in their script. These are patients that may have had a, a, an in situ ulnar nerve decompression for cubital tunnel, or maybe they have what, what is presenting as carpal tunnel symptoms, but their EMGs are negative and they're having more of their symptoms when they bring their arm overhead to fix their hair in the morning. So these are patients that we're going to find in our current hand and upper extremity population that don't necessarily have that diagnosis of TOS. So let's just talk about what, what is thoracic outlet syndrome. So thoracic outlet syndrome involves, it can be a, a traction or a compression on the brachial plexus, on the subclavian vein or subclavian artery. So there's, there's three different types. There's um, the subclavian vein is referred to as venous TOS. We have the subclavian artery, arterial, and then the brachial plexus involvement we refer to as neurogenic. And the population that we see 
more in our practice in the hand therapy environment is going to be involving uh, neurogenic and sometimes venous, and sometimes those are combined. So let's talk just first a little bit about the anatomy of what happens where we have the brachial plexus, we have the ventral roots of the brachial plexus coming off the cervical spine, coming down, and now we have the, they join the subclavian vein and artery, and there's three different passageways that the, that neurovascular bundle travels. One is through the scale, scaling triangle, so between the anterior and middle scaling muscles. And things to keep in mind when we talk about these three uh, passageways, these are not like the carpal canal. It's not a nice, um, uh, like well-established outlet. It's, these are dynamic. These change with movement. So it, what may be more, a little more open, like with the patient's arm at their side is now more closed off when their arm is overhead, depending if their first rib is elevated or their clavicle is not moving correctly. So these are dynamic and they change with movement. So we've got the scaling triangle between the anterior and middle scaling. So the brachial plexus comes through the scaling triangle, and then it goes over the first rib and then underneath the clavicle, and that's called the costoclavicular space. So that space, um, and sometimes I've heard it referred to as like the nutcracker. If if your if your first rib is elevated and your clavicle is not moving correctly because your scapula may not be moving correctly, that can cause a compression at that uh, at that passageway, and. If you have more of a big, heavy arm where your scapula is depressed, that can cause significant tractioning as that first rib comes over, or excuse me, as the brachial plexus comes over the first rib. When we look at the orientation of the brachial plexus, we have the lower trunk, which is the C8 T1 nerve roots join, that lower trunk comes over the first rib. So if we have an elevated first rib at that costoclavicular space, and that downward pull on the brachial plexus will result in more issues of that C8 T1, that lower trunk, which, which turns into ultimately the ulnar nerve. So when we talk about thoracic outlet, we see more ulnar nerve issues. So we've got our scaling triangle, we've got our costoclavicular space, and that third space or passageway is beneath the pec minor. And it's called many different things in the literature. Sometimes it's called uh, the subcoracoid space. Sometimes it's called the thoracal coracal pectoral gate, which is really hard to say. I like to say beneath pec minor. (laughs) I like to keep things a little more simple. Um, I'm not like, I was never like straight A student. I was always like second best. And that's why I always tell my daughter, it's okay to be second. It is okay. Because then when you're second, you work harder. (laughs) So yeah, I was never class valedictorian or anything else. All of this stuff I really had to study and help appreciate. So beneath pec minor, that plays a big role in your shoulder mechanics. So if you have some posterior shoulder tightness, so maybe patients have difficulty reaching behind their back where their posterior superior shoulder is stiff, or they have issues with reaching across their body, like they can't wash under their opposite arm or touch the top of their opposite shoulder, that would be involvement of the posterior inferior uh, shoulder. If they have stiffness there, the tendency is, and we see this a lot, especially when we ask like our patient to reach, like we ask them to reach behind their back and we see that 
scapula tilt anteriorly. So what happens if the posterior shoulder is stiff is instead of having the shoulder move like it should isolated with the scapula staying in place, we see the scapula start to compensate. So it's going to start to anteriorly tilt. And then we have that coracoid process coming down. And now we're closing off the space for the brachial plexus, subclavian vein and artery in that third passageway. So those three passageways are dynamic and they change whether your arm, you're reaching forward, you're reaching behind your back or overhead. And that's part of the reason why sometimes it's hard to really identify exactly where the problem is coming from. So we have our anatomy laid out. And now we have, so we've talked about, we've got arterial involvement with TOS. We can have venous or we can have neurogenic. And the arterial is a much smaller population. I think I've read like less than 2% of all TOS is arterial. These are people we don't tend to see in the clinic. These are ones that end up having an ultrasound or a Doppler and they find out that they've got some kind of compression or restriction. And those people tend to see the vascular surgeon. We don't tend to see them in the clinic. The ones that we see are more of the chronic conditions, the the neurogenic and sometimes the venous. And like I said, sometimes they're together. So venous involvement usually happens more over a longer period of time. So the, the arterial population of TOS, they're the younger individuals that do a lot of usually overhead activity. We've seen it sometimes like people that do a, a significant amount of yoga where their arm is in an in a extremely elevated position for long periods of time. Those are people that can develop more arterial TOS. The venous TOS is a little different because that, again, usually comes on over time. I've seen it like in weightlifters, in patients that work out a ton and not just necessarily, they're not always big bulky people. Sometimes it's like young, younger, thinner women that work out so much that their scalings have worked so hard that they've ended up now. And I, I remember a patient I saw that developed what's called collateral circulation, where when you look at their shoulder and and um, in the like infraclavicular region, you'll see a significant amount of veins. The veins are very large, and we see that collateral circulation. And when I see that, and I'm like, uh oh, that tells me that there's likely that they have a compression of the their subclavian vein. So over time, that collateral circulation has developed. I've seen that I had a firefighter too, and he he was a firefighter and he, a police officer, so kind of a dual role. And he's, you know, he had symptoms for like 10 years. And again, he was not someone that was diagnosed with TOS. It was a guy that had carpal tunnel releases. Then he had um, an in situ ulnar nerve decompression on both sides, and he was still having issues. And um, he came and the doctor's like, well, I'm not sure what's going on. I'll send you to therapy. <laughs> And that's, that's what we get, right? So we're like, okay, this someone with this vague arm pain. And when he took off his shirt, I saw this significant, and he had a, a case, a bilateral case, significant amount of veins. And he's like, well, I just, I just thought that was me. And that's what you think of because it comes on slowly over time. But that's the story of a venous uh, compression at the subclavian vein. So and it is not uncommon to see venous TOS in concert with neurogenic TOS. So let's talk about now the bulk. So the bulk of our population is neurogenic TOS. And thankfully, those people respond very well to therapy. You know, a very small percentage of those patients go on that need surgery. So these are the people that we can really shine, we can help them. So when we look at 
as far as being able to identify if this is a, a TOS problem, the history is so critical. So there's there's two types of neurogenic TOS, and uh, there's disputed neurogenic TOS and true neurogenic TOS. What true neurogenic TOS is, is that's true axonal involvement, where you have a compression on the nerve and it's constant to the point you have axonal damage. So your EMG is going to be positive. The disputed neurogenic, and disputed is kind of a not so great word, but it's kind of what we have. You know, when you look at the other options, there's like disputed neurogenic TOS, there's postural, there's assumed. I don't know if any of them are great, <laughs> but what that tells us when you have disputed neurogenic th thoracic outlet, that case is typically ma the majority of them are an issue because of traction. So you have traction on the nerve and there's been um, several animal studies that have showed that if you, if you traction the nerve more than 8% beyond its resting length, that can cause venous congestion in the vasa nervorum, which is the blood supply to the epineurium. And the axons themselves, because that, that traction is going to be intermittent, because it's intermittent, it recovers. The axons are never fully affected. So your EMGs are going to be negative. So those patients may go to a physician that only makes the diagnosis of TOS based on positive EMGs. So you have someone say that they only have their symptoms when they bring their arm overhead. So when they bring their arm overhead, the brachial plexus is coming over the first rib, underneath the clavicle, and then it's getting tractioned or pulled as they bring their arm overhead. While they, they get up there, they're like, oh my gosh, this is a lot of work. I can't keep my arm up here. They bring their arm down. So the nerve goes from being tractioned to now they bring their arm back, that traction is alleviated, the blood flow is restored. So the axons are healthy, they, which is great. But I think sometimes it's frustrating for patients. They'll come in and say, you know what, Dr. So-and-so ordered an EMG and it's negative. So like they want some kind of something to be able to say, this is what you have. And when I explain that, hey, this is actually a very good thing, that your axons are healthy, that this is an intermittent traction problem, and there's a lot of things we can do to alleviate that. And when you help kind of put the pieces together, like the look of relief on their face is like, oh, somebody finally understands. I'm not crazy. This isn't all in my head. So let's talk about that disputed neurogenic population now, and we're going to split it up into two types. So we have compressors. Those are people that have their symptoms when their arm is overhead. They bring their arm down and it's improved. And there's something called releasers. And I think releasers are the hardest um, population to wrap your head around. But once I, once I describe this, I think you're going to start to get it. Like we always think of numbness and tingling or pain, neurogenic pain is bad. Now, numbness and tingling can actually be a good thing. So let's think about, I think women can relate to this a little more than men, but let's think about like women, sometimes we like to sit on our, our foot, right? Because it feels, it's, I don't know, it's comfortable. I think your trunk muscles can take a break. I'm not that flexible. <laughs> yeah. So Men Steve, aren't that flexible. <laughs> so Steve probably is not going to do this, but Steve probably does cross his legs once in a while. Yeah, and do. we and we see this with our, if, if we have our legs crossed for, so, for too long. So if we don't know our foot's asleep or our leg is asleep, at the time. But when we uncross our legs or when we take our foot out from underneath us, what happens? What do we get? We get that awful numbness and tingling. What we're feeling is a reperfusion of blood flow. The blood flow is returning and it feels awful, doesn't it? it Pins does. and needly oh. feeling. So 
that is the same mechanism that we have with releasers. So with a releaser, you have this downward traction on the brachial plexus all day long. So what we see clinically with releasers is when we evaluate that patient, we see typically the scapula are depressed or downwardly rotated. So we think about if the rib is elevated, that the nerves are coming over the first rib and then they're coming, they're getting pulled down because the scapula is in depression or downward rotation, creating that traction. So this happens all day long. So these are people that tend to have more sedentary jobs. And sadly, in our day and age, more and more jobs are becoming more and more sedentary. I mean, even as therapists, how much time do we spend like typing on the computer? Like I remember the old days when we'd handwrite or we'd dictate and we would only be there for a second or two. And now we're on our laptops typing madly away. So we don't get that variety of movement. So let's think about though, that person that's sitting at the desk all day long, they may look great at eight or nine in the morning, but as gravity takes over and fatigue takes over, their scapula may now start to pull down in depression or downward rotation. So what happens to the nerve? So the nerve is being tractioned all day long. Patients don't feel it. You know, they do their thing. But when they go to bed at night, what happens? That traction is alleviated and now the blood flow is starting to be restored. Now, it's not a direct unload because we're laying more, again, we're laying in bed. It usually takes four to five hours for the blood flow to be restored. And what you end up with is what? Your numbness and tingling. So these patients are going to wake up with their numbness and tingling. They'll, and you'll hear in their history, they'll, they'll say, you know what? You know, I wake up in the middle of the night, I try to shake my arm out because it's numb and tingly and then I can't go back to sleep. So then my next question is like, does it happen around the same time every night? Because you could be sleeping in a position where your arm is overhead and you can get tingling. So this is, this is different. This is not, it's not positional with your arm overhead. It's positional with regards to you've unloaded the nerve. So the blood flow when it restores is going to cause numbness and tingling. What patients often say is they're like, you know what? Like I notice it is about three or three thirty in the morning now that you say that, and um, so this is the story of the blood flow being restored. And you're like, well, that's great, but the problem is they can't sleep. So now we have to back up and say, well, what kind of clinical tests can we look at to evaluate this, and what can we do to help these patients? You know, I always kind of think to myself, when do patients come to therapy? It's when like the ibuprofen stops working or they can't sleep. Those are kind of the two things. As long as they can sleep and the ibuprofen's working, we don't see them. <laughs> I would agree. So the whole concept of the releaser is, is foreign to most of us. But when you start looking at these people and listening, it's like it, it, is, it will dramatically change your practice and your approach. Yeah, I agree. That's That was my big takeaway from like when I took the course with you was that question of, are you waking up around the same time? Because I feel like I could help those people right away. And the buy-in was there immediately. And it's funny earlier, you said, you know, some of the doctors will only make the diagnosis of the EMG. And I remember when I interviewed for this job, I was asked by the physician who interviewed me if I thought TOS was real and I was sweating and I gave my, <laughs> I gave my answer, you know, and I, I told him, yes, but he just looked at me stoically and just gave me no reaction. So I did not know what he thought. <laughs> Hardcore. Yes, it was. It was. Um, and, you know, for the symptoms of TOS, I, I'm glad you touched on it because I think many of us can relate. There's people that come to us and sometimes when they come to therapy, it's almost like a last stop for them. The mm -hmm. physician's like, hey, 
maybe it's a primary care physician or someone who's not experienced in this realm and they're just writing hand pain, elbow pain, but then we're doing our clinical exam. What are the symptoms? I mean, we know that it's numbness and tingling, but are there mm -hmm. other symptoms they may have just could it be burning or just yeah that's a great pain? question because i've seen I, i've been treating tos patients for uh, a little over 20 years now and um it's they're so drastically different they're not all the same and i think that that's also what makes it hard to figure this out so um the most common i see is paresthesia, so numbness or tingling along the ulnar nerve distribution. But I've seen it in the median, just solely the median. Sometimes it's their whole hand. Sometimes it's just the radial, like dorsal radial sensory nerve. So it's not always um, in, in the same area. And sometimes it's, it's odd symptoms, like they'll complain that they feel like their hand is swollen or they just don't have the coordination. But you know, you, you look at assessment and they, they don't have any like visible swelling. That doesn't mean that doesn't, they don't have any underlying because they could have a little bit of involvement there. But sometimes one patient I had, it was itching. She had come in and she, it was a bilateral issue. She had rubbed, scratched her forearms raw oh. because of the itching. When I did her release maneuver, it reproduced her itching. And I was like, oh, bingo, <laughs> this is where we need to work. So I, I think you've got to be open-minded that um, I I had a guy actually last week, this was kind of interesting. So he had a carpal tunnel release several, like two months ago, three months ago. Um, normally we don't see patients following carpal tunnel release, but he was having problems where he was actually having ulnar nerve symptoms. And so he called in and they're like, well, we'll just send you to therapy. We'll see if you need, you know, whatever, work on the scar, et cetera. Cubital tunnel release maybe, right? Right. So, <laughs> so here now, and shame on me, he was having ulnar nerves or he was not ulnar nerve, ulnar pain, ulnar wrist pain. It wasn't paresthesias. It was pain. So I was like, shame on me. I didn't look upstream first. I did a whole wrist exam. I found nothing in the exam at all on the ulnar wrist. I tested his LT. I tested for midcarpal instability. I tested his TFCC. I looked at the volar and dorsal radial ulnar ligaments. I did all of that. Nothing. And then I'm like, and he's a big guy. He uh, played college football. He's like 62 now. He's like 300 and some pounds. He he works out a lot. The sweetest guy, like a big teddy bear, a really nice man. And um, I, so I was like, you know what? I'm going to check this out. I checked, and we're going to talk about assessment here. I checked his first rib. I did a little spring test where I pushed on the first rib. It was quite stiff on that side. And then I did um, the roost test or what we call the elevated arm stress test. And lo and behold, it reproduced his symptoms. And I was oh, like, wow. darn it, this is, but at least I caught it on the initial <laughs> valve yeah. and not wasted a few visits. So, and, and interestingly, two visits later, he was doing phenomenally better just wow. by doing a little bit with his scapula, which I'll talk about, and mobilizing his first rib. Open things up because like, so for example, and he had a carpal tunnel release for median nerve. One of his complaints when he came in was that he still had a lot of numbness in his median nerve distribution. He didn't have pain, but he had numbness. And when I did the upper limb neurodynamic test, like he could only abduct his shoulder to about 40 degrees, like with his elbow extended and his wrist extended. No, so not much. And it was like a sharp stop. You know, he had that, um, definitely had adverse neural tension. So on the first visit, I mobilized his first rib. 
And I taught him how to bring his scapula up and back. And this is a big issue with the with our patients that the scapula is depressed or downwardly rotated is we have that constant downward tensioning on the nerve. So I just gave him some scapular retraction with a little bit of elevation. I said, I want you to pinch your blades, but bring them up and back. And this is like, if there's one thing that... Um, in, in my life as a therapist, I hope that we can correct is that we don't all need to bring our shoulder blades down and back. I learned that, you know, you want to kick in your lower trap. For these TOS people, these patients with scapular depression and downward rotation, all you're going to do is traction the nerve more and make their symptoms worse. And so we got to think about unloading the brachial plexus by bringing the scapula up and back. I'm not saying everybody needs that, but I'm going to say a lot of people need that much more than bringing the scapula down and back. Down and back is great if you've got someone who tends to hike their shoulder, like if they have some a frozen shoulder or some shoulder impingement. But for this population of patients, we want to bring their shoulders up and back. We want to unload the brachial plexus and not contribute to the traction because the traction is the problem. Okay, so before I dive into more about treatment, uh, and I'll say what happened with this guy just after a couple of visits, I want to go back and I want to talk about the exam. Yeah. You can do the exam in less than five minutes. It doesn't take a long time. So what you're going to do, there, there's three big things I look at. The, the first two are, one is the, the test more for compressors, the elevated arm stress test, or traditionally known as the Roost test, where you're bringing your shoulder abducted to 90 degrees, your elbows at 90, and you're opening and closing your hand, making a fist and opening one time per second. Now, originally, Roost described this as a three-minute test, but when you look at the literature, there's a high rate of false positives after one minute. So we, we do it for one minute in the clinic, and when we're doing this, we're watching the clock and we're documenting when the symptoms occur and what their symptoms are. So for example, if on initial eval or the first time I'm doing this, they have their symptoms after five seconds, they note that they're getting um, like pain in paresthesias along their median, medial aspect of their elbow and into and paresthesias in their ring and small fingers. I want to note that because I know right now objectively that they can only keep their arm up for five seconds before they have the onset of their symptoms. This is important because when we do the reassessment, which would, whatever that's going to be, depending on their insurance and their number of visits, but I want to re repeat that test. And if I see that now, the next time, it's 35 seconds that they can keep their arm up, that's a good way to show objective improvement. So for functional tasks, well, maybe they can keep their arms overhead enough, a long enough time now they can wash their hair. So that's a good way you can tie something that's very vague into something that's more concrete as far as an objective measure and tie that with a functional activity. So that's the first test. So the elevated arm stress test or roost test evaluates for a compressor. Now we have what we call the releaser. So those patients that wake up in the middle of the night with their symptoms. So what we do to test that, it's something called the Syriax release maneuver. And what that involves is the patients just sitting with their arms at their side. And I will usually put some pillows in their lap to prop up their arms a bit, or I'll have them scoot forward at the hand table and just put their arms in the table. I'm going to come behind the patient and I'm either going to grasp at their elbows, making sure I'm not in the at pushing on the cubital tunnel, or I'm going to go on the lateral border of the scapula, but I am going to push up. I'm going to unload. So passively bringing their scapula up. I tell patients, I want you to relax. 
what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring your shoulders up to your ears and I'm going to hold that for a minute. And I want to find out is that, and I don't, I don't give them a loaded question. I'm just watching the clock. I say, just let me know if anything changes in your arms or in your symptoms. So I unload them. So I take this, what happens when we unload the nerve that's under tension or traction, blood flow returns. So I'm looking for a reproduction of their symptoms. So I bring their arms up and over the years, just because I've got smaller arms and if I've got someone with a bigger, bigger, heavier arms, I like to use along the lateral border of the scapula, just under the axilla if they're not ticklish. And I, I come up and I hold it that way, but I'm looking for reproduction of their symptoms and I'm watching the clock. How long does it take? Okay. So Sometimes patients, you lift up and within, you know, 10, 12 seconds, oh, I'm feeling my symptoms. What are you feeling? Oh, I'm getting some tingling in my thumb and index finger or, oh, I feel it along the back of my forearm. I note that time. And again, I use that as my objective measure. This is a nice objective measure then to help us for the functional activity of sleeping through the night, which is huge for patients. When I explain to patients, when you can't sleep, you can't heal. So my number one priority is to first get you sleeping through the night. So we have our elevated arm stress test or roost test. We have our Cerex release test. The time of day that you do the Cerex release test is going to matter because if I have someone, let's say my 7 a.m. eval comes in, big heavy arms, um, complains, works at a desk all day, complains they wake up every night with, at about 3 or 3.30 with their symptoms, um, so they have to shake their arm out. And I come in, I'm like, oh my gosh, this guy's totally releaser. I unload their scapula, so perform passive scapular elevation, and nothing happens. What happened? What, 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 ha what went on? Well, they've already released. They released at 3.30 in the morning. That same patient coming in at 4 or 5 in the afternoon, you're going to see a different story. So it's important to note the time of day that you test this because it's ideal if you can to try to test without, like when you do a repeat test for a reassessment, it's nice to be like at the same within an hour or two of when you tested it initially. But the time of day matters because if it's the morning, they're not going to have had that downward traction long enough to, to, to cause their symptoms. So you need to test it more in the later afternoon. So just because you can't reproduce it doesn't mean they're a releaser to the time of day. You'll need to do it more later in the afternoon. Okay. The other thing, the third test I like to look at is the presence of an elevated rib. Um, the first rib is one, something we really don't think about a lot, but the first rib, you can find it on yourself. If you just come in and there was a study that uh, Lloyd did, I think in like 2014, they found if you went from your mastoid process, so let's find, and I tell patients, I want you to find your earlobe and go just behind that, that big bump on your skull, that's your mastoid process. If you go straight down from that, down toward your shoulder, you're going to hit your first rib. And if patients don't can't find the mastoid, I tell them go down from their earlobe. But Patients can find that. It's a little space between the transverse process of the T, of T1 and where the scapula is. You don't want them pushing down on the scapula, but that's where we find the first rib. So that's where I can do a very simple test. I, I call it the spring test where I'm just springing. I'm pushing on the first rib to see if it's stiff. And I'll test their uninvolved or lesser involved side. I'm just going to push in a diagonal fashion toward their opposite hip. And I want to see how much excursion and end feel do I have. When the rib is elevated, it's going to be harder. It's not going to move as much. And often you'll see their whole body start to compensate. 
what you'll hear as far as difficulties if patients have an elevated first rib, they're going to have difficulty looking over that same side. So let's say if my right first rib is elevated, I'm going to have more trouble turning my head to check my blind spot on the right side. So those are hints that we listen for, that if the rib is elevated, they'll often complain of, you know, it feels like a rock under my, my, you know, my upper trap. It just feels like a rock. Well, it is a rock. It's a rib. It's bone. <laughs> and when the rib is elevated, it pushes up into the upper trap. So you'll often find, you know, trigger points and things in the upper trap, but you'll also find an elevated rib. And it's, it's interesting when you find that and you work on improving that mobility, they're like, oh my gosh, this feels so much better. And what you've also done now it, when you mobilize the rib, and we'll do that typically in a supine position, and we'll use breathing to help. So we'll come up on top of that first rib with the patient supine. They take a deep breath. When they exhale, I'm pushing toward their opposite hip. There's two joints we look at, but simplistically, if we talk about the costovertebral joint, we're going toward that opposite rib to help that, uh, the opposite hip, excuse me, to help that rib drop down. And what that does is that helps two things in our gates for the thoracic outlet. It helps improve the mobility in the costoclavicular space, and it also improves the space of the scaling triangle. So the, the key with rehab is we want to get the first rib down, we want to get the scapula up. If we can do those two things, amazing things will happen for a patient. And you don't have to get it moving a whole lot to make a big difference, which is pretty neat. Because I remember like in school looking at the brachial plexus and cadaver lab, and I'm like, this is it. It's just this tiny little thing. So if you get the first rib moving just a little, you get the scapula up and back, big things are going to happen with the blood flow to the nerve. It's, it's pretty amazing. Am I remembering my arthrokinematics correctly? I believe when we elevate our arm, I love the nutcracker analogy you said, <clears throat> um, because I always I think that my, was from Mark Walsh. I, Mark Walsh did talk about that. I always refer to it as like a pump handle because as I, as I elevate my arm, I believe the clavicle should anteriorly roll, but then the first rib should posteriorly roll. Am I, am I off on that? So okay. Please. So the clavicle is going to roll posteriorly and glide anteriorly. Okay, glide yes. Anterior. Uh -huh. okay, thank you. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And the first rib, so if the first rib is elevated, you don't have much much space. It, it starts roll, right? to close Just, off. It's kind of like a sandwich, a nerve sandwich, right? Right. Yeah. Right, exactly, exactly. So um, if you can get that first rib moving just a little bit and get the scapula up and back, you're going to open that space. So let's go back to my guy. Remember the guy that I had sillyly done all the ulnar nerve yeah. or the, all the tests for the ulnar wrist and nothing came out. And I'm like, hmm. <laughs> I got, I, I worked in his rib for one session. I worked in his first rib. I taught him to bring his shoulder blades up and back. And then I gave him just a brachial plexus flossing. So like kind of in the upper limb neurodynamic test position one, but I had him shrug his shoulder and, and side bend his neck. So when you shrug your shoulder and side bend, you are putting your brachial plexus on slack. Now, if someone has cervical spine issues and they can't side bend, even just elevating their scapula will make a big difference. So if we're having our patient do a brachial plexus glide or flossing, I prefer the flossing early on just because I think it's less aggressive for the nerve and it really facilitates that mobility, both blood flow and intrafascicular mobility of the nerve. So when he started initially, he was that first visit, again, remember I said it was like 40, 40 degrees of abduction of his shoulder. So I gave him the flossing to do. He came back, his son was getting married in Arizona, so he and his wife were going to be gone for like three weeks. I just saw him last week and he came back and he's like, well, he said, 
my my tingling in my hand is getting a lot better the sensation from his carpal tunnel release he's like it's not fully back yet but he's like i can tell it's it's better and his ulnar wrist pain was like cut in half from what it was at the start i'm like this is good. I had him show me the brachial plexus floss and he was able to get up to 90 degrees. I couldn't believe it. And he's like, oh yeah, I'm just feeling just a tiny bit of pull now. It was so much different. And just getting the first rib down and his scapula in a better position really opened things up. And that's why it's so important, especially with your distal nerve compressions, to do your thoracic outlet test just to rule it out. It takes five minutes, but it can be huge, hugely impactful for your outcomes for your distal issues. When you look at the literature as far as with double crush and the relationship between like a proximal issue that I, I was just looking at, um, the cervical spine, like cervical radiculopathy and carpal tunnel, looking at EMG, they estimate anywhere from 10 to 70% have a proximal component of cervical radiculopathy. 70 is quite high. That was only like one study, but the majority like between 10 and 30% had a double crush. Um, issue. There was another study um, that was done and it was looking more at the clinical symptoms of ulnar nerve with TOS. And what they found was they looked at um, long distance cyclists. I think it, there was 70. This was in a little older study done in 2008. A therapist um, did the study. Um, I can't remember her first name, but her last name, oh, Tanya, Tanya Smith. Um, interesting study. She took people with clinically positive ulnar nerve symptoms and she did thoracic outlet testing and found 40% of that population that had clinically positive ulnar nerve symptoms. So either paresthesias in the ulnar nerve, a positive elbow flexion test, or decreased um, sensation via SEMS-Weinstein in the ulnar nerve distribution, 40% of them had TOS, like a positive thoracic outlet test, either with the elevated arm stress test and the Syriax release. And I think the Syriax release, I, um, I, I think it was like in the 40% range for Syriax and 38 for the, for the Roos or elevated arm. So it's really an important component to take a look at for treatment. So for the clinical exam, obviously we don't have to get into the, the distal stuff. We can do that at a, at a later date, but if those three tests were negative, is that where you would work your way down? I'd like to rule out, you know, radial tunnel, cubital tunnel. So yeah, so I'll do my TOS screen first. I'll I'll screen for like looking at two. I'll do my spurling test. I'll do my thoracic outlet test first before then I do my distal nerve compression, whether I'm dealing with a cubital tunnel, radial tunnel, Wartenberg's, that type of thing. Um, sometimes, like you'll see, especially again, we see more ulnar nerve issues with TOS. I'll have somebody that has a positive, let's say elevated arm stress test, reproducing ulnar nerve symptoms, but I'll get the test, the positive, positive test will happen at like 30 or 35 seconds, but then I'll do my elbow flexion test when I'm doing my more local tests and that'll be positive at, at like 10 seconds. So then I know more the primary component is at the cubital tunnel itself, but I still want to address scapular mechanics, check if the rib is elevated. I want to do those things because I know that's going to help me more with my localized treatment with the cubital tunnel. So yeah. you just, you, you end up with better outcomes to, yeah. to screen and just, again, do some simple things to help open up that area. Yeah. I think that's a great point. I can, I always talk about my failures on this podcast, I think, but in the past, if I would get a script where they had carpal tunnel, cubital tunnel, whatever it is, if it was something elbow below, I would just focus locally and, you know, I wasn't doing as well where I could treat the entire chain. So I'd say credit to you for opening my eyes and helping me look for that. 
I'm just curious, could you speak to, you've done a great job of just talking about the testing, mm -hmm. what we want, we want overall that first rib mobility to improve. We want that scapular. We want more upward rotation, not so much downward rotation. Could you just speak to what does the treatment look like? I mean, mm -hmm. we, we know the goals, but um, what are some of the exercises and, mm -hmm. and how long would you see someone in clinic for? Okay. That's a great question. First of all, Steve, don't beat yourself up. I've spent years beating myself up about like, oh, darn it. I wish I would have, you know, like, so I feel like someday when I die, like I'm going to find out what I missed with some of those <laughs> patients. But I, I feel like too, that when you're always trying to learn and improve your skills, don't look at the people that you failed in the past. Cause like I said, I've always beat myself up, but you got to look at like who you're going to help in the future with this knowledge. So now you're going to be more even well prepared when you see that next person that's complicated because these people have a long history. Often they've had their symptoms eight, 10 years. So what is it? What does the treatment look like? So, you know, in an ideal world where I don't have insurance limits, I wow. love to see these patients twice a week for um, anywhere, sometimes from eight to 10, sometimes 12 weeks. Now that's in an ideal world. Um, due to insurance restrictions, I'm often sometimes seeing them like maybe twice a week for like one or two weeks and then once a week and then spacing it out every two to three weeks. So your goals really are, there's three things. You want to get the first rib down. So you want to mobilize the rib. You want to get the shoulder blade up and back. So you want to do activities that are going to encourage scapular elevation. So we want to address if they have any stiffness in their lat muscle. The lat muscle is one of the, I think, the key offenders with TOS because it tends to pull the scapula down via its attachment on the lateral board of the scapula, as well as bringing their arm down just because the lat attaches to that in the lesser tuberosity. So we want to stretch out the lat. We want to get that mobility passively first. And then we want our patients to start doing ideally wall slides where we can engage that scapular elevation. So their arms are positioned overhead, like on the wall, just to support. And then you want them to actively elevate. So it's not they're moving their arms, it's the scapula. And I tell patients, I want you to lead with your shoulder blades, but you're going to elevate. And I have them start doing that three to five repetitions often throughout the day, four or five times a day, because I want to start getting out of the mechanics of just having glenohumeral motion and the scapula stays depressed. Because when the scapula is depressed, you're tractioning the brachial plexus. And they'll notice a difference. So like, geez, when I hike my shoulder up, when my arm is overhead, I don't have symptoms in my arm. And that's, that's really good feedback from them. So we start there as far as for the scapula, the other piece, which I haven't really talked a ton about, I did initially a little bit in the, in the beginning, but is addressing that posterior shoulder tightness. So cross body stretch, mobilizing the posterior shoulder, posterior capsule, it's the capsule and the muscle together, but you want to start getting more mobility so they can isolatedly reach behind their backs. So you may have them pinching their shoulder blades together and passing something behind their back to start to get more motion at that posterior superior aspect of the shoulder. Having them to maybe doing the modified sleeper stretch or stretching across their body, making sure their scapula is stabilized to start getting the posterior inferior portion. But that will help their with their mechanics because now they're not tending to anteriorly tilt. So they're not closing off that space beneath pec minor. So those are the three things. First rib, we want down, scapula up, and we want to address our posterior shoulder tightness. As far as exercises, so that I think the hardest thing with these patients is in general, therapists tend to give patients too much and then they work, they use their scalings to compensate and then they pull their rib up and then they flare themselves up. And so you want to 
be very gentle with your exercises, low resistance, low repetitions. So one I like to start with, um, it's a little easier for patients to grasp, is just doing like a pull apart with their elbows flexed with holding just a light TheraBand, whether that be yellow or red, but teaching them that you don't want them to recruit their cervical muscles. So I, they want to feel it like in the middle trap and a little bit rhomboids, but you don't want them feeling it in their cervical spine. So, cause their neck muscles tend to love to help. So I'll start with pull aparts, doing those in supine. I'll start once I've stretched out the lat and along the, the lateral aspect of their rib cage and trunk, I'll have them start doing the wall slides. And um, I also have them doing like a scaling stretch where they're stabilizing their first rib. So you don't want to have them just tipping their head to the side to stretch because if that rib is not anchored, it's going to pull it up. So I teach them how to stabilize their first rib coming down from that mastoid process and then take a deep breath. And when they exhale, that rib's going to drop down and then they can do just a little bit of a chin roll and a slight side bend, not much, just a little to provide a mild stretch on the scalings. Oftentimes patients, because their rib is so stiff, they can feel a stretch just with exhaling and that's where I have them stay. But I'll have them do that typically twice a day. The, um, the posterior shoulder stretches, I'd like them to do that twice a day. And then the wall slides is the biggie. I want them to do that more frequently so that they can start to, I tell them, this is, this is teaching your body how to move differently. This is not just an exercise. So I'll have them do that more frequently, four to five times a day, but just a few repetitions. Again, no more than five. Usually I start with three and I want to make sure it's symptom-free because if it isn't, it's too much to do in standing. We may need to back up and have them do it in sideline. As far as one more thing, as far as with the cuff, there was um, Mike Creccio and Cindy Frazier had a nice review article from the Journal of Hand Therapy in 2011 talking about like a summary of like surface EMG with how much the muscles are working in different positions. And for the rotator cuff, what they found was in standing, if you have someone using um, a TheraBand and performing shoulder external rotation with their arm at their side, that there's much more cervical muscle recruitment with that versus doing it in a sideline position. So since reading that article at that time, I and, and the, here's the, check, the hard part because it's more for the patient to lay on their side, but I know they're not going to be recruiting their cervical muscles as much. So anybody with a lot of um, recruitment of upper trap and scalings or the rib is elevated, I will have them do shoulder external rotation inside line. Again, making sure their scapula is up and back in a good position and then actively or with a very lightweight working on shoulder external rotation to get their cuff kicked in. So those are the biggies. I think that's a great clinical pearl. It kind of makes me think of um, the functional movement system, the great cook guys. I went to a course with them and they talked about that. They have a four by four matrix they talk about and they want you to start them in supine or, or side lying. Mm -hmm. And then you get into a half kneeling, tall kneeling and you, and you stand in because you're right. I've had patients where you, you might have to start these patients with the pull aparts in supine because they are using their neck. I think that was a great um, clinical pearl. And I have, I have two questions left. Would you say that people with TOS, do they return to the clinic? Is this like a lifelong thing for some of these people or? And that's the thing. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. And that's, 
an excellent point. Like you have to teach patients, this is a management thing. Like you have to make this part of your lifestyle. So it's, you really want to make sure that the home program you give them is something that's a feasible thing that they can do for their life and not something that just, oh, they're going to stop because the patients that stop doing their exercises are ones that tend to come back. And you're not a bad therapist because they come back. It's just the nature of this type of a, of a condition where people have flare-ups. So I'll have patients sometimes come back a couple year or two later. They may need a couple of visits, a tune-up, and then they're doing fine. The, the longest I've had is I've had actually two patients when the same week came back seven years later. And I asked them both, I'm like, you know, what changed? And they're like, you know, I felt so good. I stopped doing my exercises and then it started to creep back. So it's, you want to give them things that are very um, easy to incorporate in their life. So like the wall slides are a biggie. That is something I have everybody do. If everyone can do wall slides and even just pinch their shoulder blades up and back, that would be great because that's going to help facilitate maintaining that space. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, myself, I've been guilty of that in therapy. I meet so many people who stop doing their stuff, but I think setting up that expectation at the first visit and explaining that to them, that was amazing. And is, is there any takeaways you want the listeners to remember? I, th- I think just what we discussed early on is just, um, especially with those patients with the vague, like when you ask them where it hurts and they do these sweeping arm motions, the, this is where sometimes therapists are like, Oh boy, this one should have been with my coworker, not me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But, um, I, schedule next right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, but I think, you know, Start off, listen with their history. Are they having more symptoms when their arm is overhead? Are they having their symptoms at night? Take the time, take the five minutes to do those thoracic outlet tests because it can give you a lot of information and really help to make you more efficient and kind of weed out other things that it could be. Because again, these patients often have had symptoms for a long period of time. Perfect. All right, Anne, you're already on uh, the podcast once. So we're going to let you off the hot seat this time. Oh, good. I'm not going to ask any difficult questions that I'm like, Oh, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) You are not, but thank you so much for your time. This was, this was perfect. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. Thanks so much for listening to that episode of the hand to shoulder podcast. On the next episode, Cassie Shu is back and she's bringing a new co-host with her. I'm getting the boot for the next episode, but I'm excited for everyone to listen to this episode. It's going to be great. As always, if there are any topics you would like us to cover, feel free to reach out to us through email at h2stherapist at newhands.net. That's the letter H, the number two, the letter S, therapist, all together at newhands.net. Thanks so much and we'll catch you on the next episode.